Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Well, welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast during an election week. A freaking election week. I love it. It's amazing. We love to see it. We are recording this on Tuesday, November 2nd, aka my sister's birthday. Happy birthday, but also (gasps) election day. There are elections happening all over the place, the bigger ones in certain places. New York City is one of them. Virginia is another. And so we will get actually into some of that later, especially this Virginia governor's race and our top stories. But it was also Halloween this this weekend. Mm-hmm. How how was your Halloween, Sam? Well, I actually had a wedding. So oh, a spooky it was wedding. like which was funny, like because we didn't dress up or well we dressed up for like the wedding, like kinda like cocktail attire type stuff, but like, you know, we didn't do the spooky element. But I do need to first tell you about the Halloween costume that you should have done before we talk about the one that you did do, which I do also love. If we were honestly, if we did this one together, okay. which is Ghostbusters, which that like you're busting on the ghosters. Love that. I think we definitely should have been Ghostbusters because we we, we do be busting some ghosts We really these be busting. Days. Busting them ghosts. Um, Casper. And the ghosts really just love us. Like, they really love us. You guys, I texted Sam. Actually, <laughs> Sam actually texted a man and called him Casper and asked for her clothes back this weekend. No answer. Oh, he finally answered. He oh, finally he answered. He, he did, said. and he was like, "Hey there." He also changed his hinge, by the way. I was like, "Okay, mm. okay. Well, obviously, we know what was happening here." So he's We're back on the market. Back on the market. Highly, I guess, ten out of ten. Do not recommend because he might ghost you too, ladies. But regardless very curious i'm doing a a clothing exchange tomorrow with said casper so i'll let you guys know how how it goes i'm curious i really don't know what i'm walking into did he address the fact that you called him casper at all or no 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 (laughs) why would he he? that that bit of gold (laughs) like just hanging there i was like okay all right the rest of my text was like very mature my you know it had a little bit of an immature intro the hey casper but it really you know I don't know. We'll see what the vibes are tomorrow. I'm really curious. I can't I mean, they're wait definitely... to hear this story. Okay. The Ghostbusters costume would have been very timely for me to do, but I didn't even think of that. Okay, so anyways, you went to a festival, so let's get let's get into that a little bit. I did. I went to Outside Lands in San Francisco. First of all, love going to a festival where in a city in which you live. Um, mm-hmm. Love to be able to come home to my bed. That is epic. was a huge, huge moment that I loved about this festival. Usually I'm like at an Airbnb or on somebody's couch. But 
crazy being at a festival post-COVID. It was my first one. Being in crowds like that was insane. Like, I forgot what that's like, but also post-COVID, it's it's weird. It's just it's like a weird. weird phenomenon that you throw yourself into at a festival. But it was very, very fun. Dressed okay. up as Daphne from Scooby-Doo. Again, that was a very last-minute costume, but I ended up loving it. I ordered clip-on bangs for a different costume. And then I ended up hating that costume. And then I randomly, my roommate and I wanted to go to Zara just to shop around. Found this adorable purple satin dress. And I was like, Daphne. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I have the clip-on bangs. Got some ribbon, put it as a headband. Put my little green scarf on. And I had white tall boots and this is it was it was a look it was a look for sure and you say you have issues with costumes that is like literal perfection and the best part about that is like every single thing clip on bangs included you can like wear again and make like a cute thing i really I thought know, you were, i thought i was gonna get on this video and you had like cut your hair into bangs i thought they were real well I, the masses have spoken, and I might be getting bangs soon. Apparently, you know, wow. everyone everyone loves the bangs. So they did. Look I've good. always they really did. I've literally always thought that this is actually a joke from one of Amy Schumer's stand up specials, where she was like, <laughs> "Would I just be like the hottest person ever if I just cut bangs? Am I just like missing out on the most beautiful version of myself?" And I've always thought that. Mm. And I was like, maybe bangs could be cute. And then I did the clip on, and I was like, "This has potential." It does. Let's move. Let's move forward because let's, let's do it. We had some big events. We had Halloween. We have Election Day. But another major, major moment is happening today, and that is drum roll. Wow, I'm so is live. <laughs> <laughs> Our merch is live. There's merch. Woo. Girl in the Gov merch available for you right now it's in the episode description go check it out i just i don't even know what to say i'm so excited me too so maddie and i had like gotten the samples like a week or two ago (laughs) and have been like living in everything since and obsessed and then we're like oh my god like we can't wait to show everyone and so now that it's like finally here and also too i feel like everyone's like where's the merch for like a while and we're just, we can be slow sometimes. We're perfectionists and we just, especially me. It's just, it's really just Sam and I out here. We're, we're trying our best. Um, we're chugging along. We've been talking about merch probably since the spring, but it's here. It's here and it's right in time for honestly the holidays. Mm-hmm. Get some for yourself, get some for your friends, your family. They're super cute. We'll also be posting like pics of the graphics and everything like that on IG, on TikTok, on all of that. So you'll see it. What's important to know, this is like the logistical stuff, but like it is important, is that this is our first little mini launch and stuff is only going to be online for 15 days. Like it's really, it's quick, it's fast, so you have to get in, get in, get out, you know, whatever. Really quickly pick you what you want, what you want for your friends, your friends, 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 like whatever, whoever you're buying for, it's quick. We want to make sure that you guys are able to get stuff before the holidays. So that's part of it. And then also too, we want to see what you guys like the most. So let us know, sign to our DMs, what you like are obsessed with, what you're like, okay, maybe not. Or like, what about this in another color? Like we are all ears. This is our first little experiment. So 
bear yeah. with us. We, and let us know any inspo you yeah. have and what other, you know, even types of clothing you would like to see. We've been True. talking about sweat shorts for a long time. So sweat sets, sweat shorts, whatever you guys want to see, let us know. We can go through this this batch and see how it goes mm-hmm. and make some more for you all. Totally. You guys can literally go right now, go to the link while you're listening to our episode and go shop around. But we also have an amazing guest today. We do, do you want to introduce her? I'm so obsessed with her. <laughs> <laughs> you guys. No, like she's, she's so freaking cool. I just want to be her. It's fine. So anyways, that person is Danya, and she is the team lead for gender equality at the IRC. So if you don't know what the IRC is, that is the International Rescue Committee. So as you may be able to guess, Maria just said, we are talking about gender, but worldwide and in many, many contexts. So whew, we get into it, and it is so interesting. Maddie and I both were like sitting there like, oh my God, we are learning so much. It's insane. Holy moly. Like, my God. So anyways, take notes, listen again and again. This episode is really phenomenal and Danya is amazing. So without further ado, here is Danya. All right, well, we are so excited to have you here to get into this conversation. And I think first things first, let's talk about your journey. How did you get here? What is your role? And was this like always like a pipe dream of yours? Did you always think like, I want to work for the IRC. Like, what is that whole story? Give us the tea. Yeah, so I'm Egyptian Jordanian. I started my career about two decades ago. I shouldn't be saying that out loud, but I started as an activist, actually, fighting female genital mutilation in Egypt. It's a very prevalent uh, practice in Egypt. And I happen to be the first generation in my family to skip it, like, from now on, never again. So until... This is as recent as my mother, so we're not talking a long time ago. And so I come from a conservative, humble background, Middle Eastern, North African, Muslim, which means it immediately if you, I think sometimes some people are born with a critical mindset. And if you are born as a woman in the Middle East, in a Muslim context, in North Africa as well, in in Muslim context, you have to question how come there are privileges that you are systematically excluded from. And that immediately just puts you in a social justice space in your head and makes you, you know, a, a tiny lawyer from, from a very early age. <laughs> so uh, I ended up working on, on FGM and then from then on worked on a lot of social justice issues. I have done the rounds, as they say in our field, I, in terms of, um, <laughs> in terms of, you know, functionally, I've, I've been a frontline service provider in crises. I've also been a project manager, communications, advocacy, policy making, all of that. But I've also done the round geographically. So I've worked in South and Central Asia, Pakistan, Asia, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, everywhere uh, around there in the Horn of Africa. I was a uh, part of the 2011 Somali famine response, and of course the Middle East and North Africa starting from Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Sudan, Egypt, Tunis, Morocco. So I've done the rounds. <laughs> and and yeah, I've been in the humanitarian field all along, specifically working on channeling humanitarian assistance to those most marginalized within humanitarian crises. And your specialty is really focused on gender. 
So given that you obviously started with like FGM, I really see how this storyline kind of comes together, where that is. But in terms of what you're working on now, what does that look like? Paint us a little bit of a picture there. So at the IRC, I lead a team that together we work on how to, you know, we work on methodically or systematically and intentionally reaching those most vulnerable and marginalized populations within conflict and disaster contexts. So the International Rescue Committee was founded by Albert Einstein in the United States, and its mandate was initially to assist Germans uh, fleeing from the Hitler and, and, and the Nazi regime. And later on, refugees fleeing Mussolini's Italy and Franco's uh, Spain and so on. So our focus has always been refugees and displaced populations fleeing disasters and crises. And humanitarian principles in, in, in general always dictate that you have, you have to, and it's, it's, these are the principles that I have really absorbed throughout the past two decades, is that you have to, when you have finite resources, to focus your effort and resources and attention and prioritize those most vulnerable in need and proportionality also plays, uh, plays a role. So in other words, the way humanitarian principles that we at the IRC uh, espouse say that we have to always prioritize those most affected by crises and those most vulnerable within crises, but also those most disproportionately affected by crises. So who is the most disproportionately affected population? And and by focusing on that, we, we also assist the, the, the larger community uh, at large. That's also amazing. And what, what does your specific role really entail on a day-to-day basis? Like for people to kind of paint that picture of what people can imagine you doing on your day-to-day. So what is it that I do? Besides being incredibly sleep deprived, uh, as I have a toddler, uh, and just- I'll hand you this coffee through the screen. Oh gosh, it's, it's midnight here and I'm having coffee already. But we, I lead a team, as I said, and, and that, that really focuses on how we can be more intentional about reaching the most marginalized. But the way that we do it at IRC is that we do it in a twofold way. We, we focus both internally because we cannot address inequality externally until we, we address it internally. It will not become, a, I cannot give you how to act in every scenario based on the power dynamics that you observe unless I give you the power dynamics tinted glasses that you can see the world through through an organizational culture that that understands and internalizes these values so we work internally on addressing these power dynamics from a gender perspective and and by gender by the way one of the things that is very important to address is that when we talk about gender as IRC we're talking about it from an intersectional lens, but we're also talking about it from a non-binary lens or a, a, a non-conforming lens, not, not that uh, you know, female, male, sex, that is sex. We're talking about a, a much more complex concept of gender, but also in how gender intersects other levels of identities that exacerbate either privilege or disadvantage. So we work internally on how we, as, as, as IRC with 15,000 people working across the world, 
how do we how do we address power dynamics internally but we also work externally on how we are intentional about in, and about how we do our programs and how we are informed by those most marginalized um, and maybe it would help if i give it as an example it, the way that like if we were to really um, tell you on a day-to-day -day basis the way we do that is if we go into a community hit by a disaster or by a conflict who is talking to those most affected is very important. Are we talking to the village elders who most of the time happen to be men? Uh, uh, and who is talking to them? Are they also men? And therefore not getting access to the most important information that we need there about the most vulnerable people. So we make sure that those who are talking to them are from the community, are people who represent those who can have access to the most vulnerable. And also when we're talking to them, are we talking to them and asking them questions that are intentional about understanding, the, the making them telling, telling us what they need rather than basing what they need on assumptions and, and, and having people have a say in how we can help them. Otherwise, it will be another perpetuation of power dynamics where an international organization is coming in to tell them what they need. Right, totally. Yeah, I feel like that's so important too, because if you don't have the actual perspective, you could just be, whether it's you're throwing donations or solutions, whatever it is in any form, you're just kind of throwing it to the wind and hoping something sticks. And like, there's lots of places where maybe that's a strategy, but in this particular spot where you need to act quickly and you need it to be effective with finite resources, that's not the way to go. So it's really great to hear that you guys are thinking about, okay, how do we actually get into that community? How do we have that access? And how do we make sure that this is actually going to work? Because it's yeah. like, kind of, I feel like from what you're saying, it's sort of like a one-shot deal. We got to get it right the first time and there's not a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. 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 I mean, hopefully there is sometimes we have to, we have to have a little <laughs> bit of wiggle room. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with you that I think it's very important that when we get in, we ask the right questions we ask, and the people who are asking the questions are the right people and they're asking them to the right people. That kind of increases your chances of offering more relevance and more, you know, ROI assistance. In a democracy, we all have citizen power. We just need to know how to use it. Yet, if you feel fed up or confused by the U.S. government, you're not alone. Most voters feel powerless, especially when lobbyists and special interest groups seem to control the levers of government more so than the people. But your voice and your vote matter. When you understand how the government actually works, you can have a surprising amount of influence. Citizen Power with Natalia Ramos and Ben Sheehan is a 10-day course, signed for free, here, aka in that link in our bio, that offers the civics education you missed or you may have forgotten from high school. This is not just about facts and dates. It's about giving you back your power as a citizen to move forward the issues you really care about. By taking this course, you'll learn what should be taught in civics class, but isn't, your rights and powers as a citizen, how you can have the most influence over your elected representatives, real actionable steps you can take to influence policy, and the confidence and conviction to contribute to the future of democracy. You are the CEO of your elected officials, and it's time to make sure your voice is heard. So head to the link in our episode description to start your amazing civics class today and get the first five days free. Again, head to that link in our episode description and get five days free.
All right, guys, do you need stress relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or even some new incredible skincare? Prima has amazing, doctor-formulated, clinically validated, and high-performance CBD products for the skin, the body, and the mind, you guys, and it comes in so many forms. So we have CBD supplements to bath bombs, body lotions, skincare. I've gotten some serious relief from stress, hangovers, anxiety, even PMS with this stuff. So give it a shot. Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's top 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on sustainable farming practices, being carbon neutral, 100% clean with strict safety standards, which is all so, so important to us. So there's also some big news because Prima has launched an app that offers self-care in the palm of your hands and allows you to shop with ease access exclusive content, and much more. So lucky for us, you can enjoy the relief of the best CBD products out there because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive, limited time, 20% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co, feel better every day. Totally. Well, speaking of asking the right questions, we have a lot of stupid questions for you. Like a lot of stupid questions. Maddie, I don't know if you want to take this first one, but. I got you. We are moving into our I have a stupid question segment and we're going to start it off with what is child marriage and kind of what are the details with it? Like, is there an age range? How does that work? First of all, as someone who works in gender equality, I have to tell you, there's no such thing as stupid questions and very few men would start their questions that way. True. (laughs) (laughs) that's what we're trying to shift it's like a ironic segment you know right no 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 absolutely but i think actually maybe maybe more men should start their questions that way and you should continue Mm. so i think it's not a stupid questions uh, question at all because it is quite complex and and there are different definitions now the global norm set by the convention uh, of the rights of children which is a un uh, treaty is is the is that uh, it's someone a childhood is until 18 years old that's the global norm if you ask me my personal opinion i will not allow my child to take any decisions until her frontal cortex is fully developed at 25 but <laughs> at least that's the, the global notion right until 18 Fair. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're finding out right now. So in most cases, that is in humanitarian context, that is the, the, the golden standard. That's the rule that we, we, we follow. However, in some places, the law states that people reach the age of majority, which means becoming adults or are considered adults when they are married. For people in those countries, there is no age per se for marriage that would be legally considered a child marriage, right? In some countries, girls are considered marriageable uh, once they menstruate. In other countries, there are different ages for boys and girls. So it's, it's, not, it's not clear cut. It's not but if one of them, according to our humanitarian context, if one of them is uh, 18 or below is considered a child. And surprisingly, even child marriages exist in, in the United States. I mean, child marriages are legal, according to that definition, the 18 definition in 44 states. And there's a group chained at last. The research shows that there's over 300,000 children, uh, some as young as 10, who are married in the U.S. between 2000 and 2018. So it's not, 
it's not a stupid question it's it's very complex but in yeah. in you know conventionally in the humanitarian sector it's 18 or under. why is it 18 i have no idea i have no answer to that question it's a very good question but i have it's no such a random number yeah. like yeah when when i rule the world i'll make it 25 perfect which is great and i hope there's like a retroactive clause for anything i did under 25 any stupid decisions things i've said i'm i'm 25 right now so i'm like oh my god i'm like not an adult that's wild (laughs) but that but but there is something called brain elasticity which makes your brain mature faster slower based on stimulation so you never know it's not hard fast rules i think i'm pretty mature so we're going to go with that. <laughs> I'll take We're it. working on it. We're working on it. It's, I'm it's working on it every day. I'm working on it every day, I promise. <laughs> but that is like such a great question in terms of 18. I was weirdly, I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, who made this very specific age? Like, I mean, granted, I'm obviously we grew up with it, so we're used to it. Like, did it just roll off the tongue well? Because it kind of does. But or like, like 16 like for driving, number. 16 for driving, 21 for drinking. That's another weird one. It's just like, they're all so random. Yeah. 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 I have a lot of questions on this. Anyways. But for for other questions that we also do have in terms of terms, in terms of terms, wow, that's a real tongue twister that I just gave myself. But what is the difference between child marriage and forced marriage? And is there is there a difference in general? So this is easy. All child marriages are forced marriages, and but not all forced marriages are child marriages, meaning that Forced marriages are really dependent on consent. And since since children cannot consent, they're by default forced marriages. So basically a forced marriage is a a marriage where one of the parties or both are either unable to consent or have not consented. And being a child means you're unable to consent. Okay. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. And what does it mean to be internally displaced in a conflict? What is that? And how does that play into your work? So that that's that's there's there's always a conflation between refugee and internally displaced. Traditionally, internally displaced, that means you are you have been uprooted from where you live within the recognized national boundaries. Refugee means it's someone who has fled and moved across international borders, right? So if you're within your country and you're displaced, you're internally displaced. If you have left those international borders that define your your country, which are known most of the time, but there are cases that are these are not clear, you're then a refugee. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Because I feel like so many of the times, like these words get, or these terms get thrown around and you're like, wait, but I feel like it's similar. Where's the line? There's got to be a line somewhere. So this makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. in terms of context and kind of extending conversation about why someone might be displaced or why someone might be a refugee. And just talking about that larger entity is during times of crisis, we seem to see a lot more violence against women, oh my God, against women and girls and honestly, I mean, obviously, generally, but why is that sort of the case? Like, is there something that's a specific cause to this or is it just kind of random? 
these are things that happen because of multiple causes. I mean, nothing really happens because of one thing. But when you start with a low baseline to begin with, any crisis mm. exacerbates any bad situation. You know, when when a crisis hits and you are already at a disadvantage of systematic exclusion from whatever safety nets and, and services and there are that there are there for you. It, it's normal that, you know, if you're starting at a low uh, baseline, you'll even go lower. I would say that women, minorities and gender non-conforming people suffer more, not just from, but suffer more in general than any other groups in any type of crisis. We've seen this in COVID-19 where people of color have been hit harder, for instance, in Europe and the US than, than, than other populations. And that always happens when the baseline is, is low. But now let's, let's go to gender-based violence in specific. And it is estimated that almost 70% of women experience gender-based violence in a humanitarian crisis. That is a huge number. And the reason, there are multiple reasons. So to begin with, violence begets violence. When you are in a violent situation, and that violence is usually initiated and started by 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 men in the communities and so on. So that always exacerbates. So there's a generalized insecurity in conflict and crisis and that violence perpetuates itself. And sometimes gender-based violence is used as a weapon in conflict as well. So we have research uh, from South Sudan that showed that 70% or more of non-partner sexual assaults happen during conflict experience. That means that sexual assault is used to, 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 as, as a weapon uh, during the conflict as well. The other thing is that conflict always disrupts family and social networks and safety networks. So there isn't that protective um, safety network for women and girls and vulnerable populations to access and, and it leaves them kind of stranded. I would say, again, you know, gender inequalities and having less power in a society puts you at a disadvantage to begin with. And with women and girls having fewer options and more stressors, for instance, child marriages are often increasing in crisis because of economic opportunities. We've seen that a lot of with Syrian communities, for instance, saying one less mouth to and marrying off children at a very early age, which puts them at a, a at a more vulnerable place for 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 abuse and assault, and then stress and economic insecurity and 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 you know turmoil around you just breeds a very violent violent social dynamic in right. general, where if women's starting point is usually at the lower end of that social dynamic, they, they tend to, to take the hit. And finally, also, I mean, when, when there's conflict or disaster, there's a breakdown of justice mechanism. There's a breakdown of access to shelters and so on. So it, it's, it's, a, it's like a, a bunch of reasons altogether that... Yeah, yeah. it's a big cocktail um, of just bad... Bad news. A bad, a very bad cocktail. Yeah. Right, exactly. Moving forward, like what another question along these lines, like what would you say are the largest threats to women and girls globally? Which is might be a really loaded question, but <laughs> that's the Pandora's box. Okay, <laughs> how much time do we have? I would, I would talk about that to anyone who would listen because uh, I mean I, it is something that I think we must do everything we can to raise awareness to. So because 
if we talk about this, let me, let me, if we're going to talk about this moment in history, particularly, we must sit and internalize what the past two years of the pandemic have done to gender equality and really, really start pondering around that and thinking about it. And I like to call it, I've been calling it, I've been, I thought and thought, I come from a communications background and I thought and thought about some catchy title for it because I call it the great regression of gender equality. There has been a great regression at every level. So currently, as a result of the pandemic, we know that women are less safe than any other time in the past 10 years. I mean, the UN has called violence against women a shadow pandemic. Between Jordan and Egypt, where I'm from, I personally, and this is like six degrees separation, I personally know of eight cases of so-called honor killing through my network. These are people I know or I know of, right? So this is something like people I know that have been stuck in homes. And the reason why we know about it is now we have mobiles and people are recording noises in the neighborhoods and so Mm. on. So this is a very eerie thing. In Latin America, for instance, where 10 of the 12 countries with the highest femicide, which is the killing of girls and women for being girls and women. Wow. 10 of the 12 countries with the highest femicides are uh, are in Latin America. And we've witnessed a spike in, in, in femicide. So in Colombia, levels of gender-based violence, for instance, have risen by more than a half since the pandemic began. And particularly in Mexico and Chihuahua, for instance, the number of femicides rose by 65% during a specific oh during God. a specific lockdown between March to April 2020. Wow. wow. So imagine that. I've never even heard that term femicide. Yeah, it, it, there's there's a lot of bodies that completely monitor femicide. There's, yeah. there's like, it's one of the largest groups in the world being born with, with you know, the female genitalia is one of the largest parts of groups in the world that are targeted for something they're born with and killed for it. Right, right. And when you think about it that way, it is crazy. It is crazy crazy. that in 2021, Mm -hmm. there are people who are killed for being born a certain way. It's also the economic participation of women, you know, if if we look at protection, if we move on economic participation of women, how many of us know couples where the women left the workforce in order to keep us afloat the past two years. You know, we all know that this economic uh, hit was harder on women, specifically women of color, more than anyone else. And many left their jobs to cope with caregiving responsibilities or because they were the lesser paid of the two. The majority of the world's poor are women and children to begin with in the global south, to begin with. So with the informal economies shutting down and supply chains shutting down, that means um, markets are shutting down and a lot of women work on in informal economies that that require public access and going to market health has been strained now that you know overburdened health systems are restricted and have have now women do not have access to reproductive and sexual health so the full scale of this phenomena is yet to be revealed but I really, really know that in my heart of hearts and the logical conclusion that we're going to see a lot of we're going to see a lot of data about maternal complications and, and unintended pregnancies that had to that had to go on and and lack of access to sexual assault and rape services. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in education, we know from the Ebola pandemic, for instance, in West Africa, we've seen that girls are less likely to go back to education when education is disrupted. And we know that the digital, global digital gender gap is very big. So any education that is only accessible through online uh, platform right, right. is going to be already exclusionary. So I hate to paint a very dark and grim picture, but I could go on. It was a very dark question. So <laughs> that's Sorry. a fair point. But it's we necessary really to talk one. about. Yeah, <laughs> definitely have to talk about it. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of causes to this situation. Like, this is not a, a one size fits all situation. But on the geopolitical front, like, what has kind of caused this situation at this point? Obviously, there's years, hundreds of years of history that has put us in this position. But if we're boiling it down to some of the current geopolitical situations, what does that look like? The fact that most of geopolitical decisions across the world are predominantly taken by men and without having gender equality at the table makes it a gendered issue to begin with. Right. So geopolitics plays a very, very important role um, in power dynamics and in, in between any social groups, you know, and, and gender is not excluded of that. In fact, gender norms are often determined by sociopolitical, cultural and economic realities. And these are inseparable from geopolitical realities. So I'm going to go a little bit of an, in a tangent here, but this is my, my favorite story about showing how politics and money and how money moves and how markets move changes gender dynamics. So in it, the rise of oil in the Middle East has really changed gender dynamics in the mid-60s. So when I look at my mother's pictures in the mid-60s, for instance, in the streets of Cairo, there are very few women who wear the traditional headscarf. And uh, there was a traditional pose, but it was very typically Egyptian. And the rise of oil in, in the Gulf and, and the ability to export um, a specific form of uh, gender dynamics informed by a certain interpretation of, of religion has has come through that kind of geopolitical influence that was because of you know the 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 fluke of, of finding oil in, in a right. certain Money. certain region making it um, making it a richer region that is able to influence other regions or uh, countries around it even even i would say even environmental factors affect gender dynamics we know that agrarian societies are very egalitarian because you need all hands on deck so everyone has a say right but we know, for instance, nomadic societies are less egalitarian because it's all about how much um, territory you can possess and women are commodified to increase that territory. So it is very, very, very important complex. to understand. It's, it's very complex and it's very important to understand that all of these come to play and none of these are, are, are uh, set in stone. I'll give you an example in, in how geopolitics played a role in Afghanistan. We see now women trying to flee Afghanistan. We know the plight of women in Afghanistan, but very few people sit and, and relate it to, for instance, going back to the geopolitics of what happened to Afghanistan, what brought the Mujahideen in, what brought the Mujahideen in and therefore brought the Taliban in, and how the, did the Taliban end up being in power? And the Taliban ultimately treats women as second-class citizens, if not last-class citizens, you know? So... This is all geopolitics. Afghanistan was not like that before the Mujahideen. So gender dynamics and power dynamics and social power dynamics, not just related to gender, but intersecting with other, other layers of marginalization and disadvantage 
are always going to be geopolitical. And, and the other thing that geopolitics play a role in is, is how aid is distributed. Right now, we unfortunately know that women and girls are deep, their voices are not necessarily heard and deprioritized when thing when when how to distribute aid is being discussed. How many women are at the table saying this is what we need? Often women are not even asked whether for their opinions on what is needed. And when when a man is already uh, determined as the de facto head of household, you know, we don't get to information, as I said earlier, who you ask and who asks the questions and what are the questions are important. So when women and girls are not asked, like, for instance, about gender violence or supplemental food for lactating mothers, they're less likely to come up with these priorities and needs assessments and therefore less likely to inform how, how aid is distributed. Yeah. That's such a good point, too. Well, you brought up Afghanistan, so let's kind of get into that because I think, obviously, relevant. But even before everything kind of happened within the last few months in Afghanistan and the U.S.'s, the United States' involvement there, it was considered, the U.N. named it the deadliest place for children on Earth for six consecutive years. Why is that? Like, what what has really been the factor there for for, you know, being the deadliest place on earth for children. I mean, what's the story there? Yeah, so uh, Afghanistan has suffered from very consecutive um, crises and, and conflicts that are exacerbated also by droughts that are exacerbated by recently COVID. So it's it, it, it's like, it, once again, the baseline for Afghanistan has been very low. It is a country that continues to struggle with infrastructure, with, with very basic services provided to its population. And also the nature of Afghanistan as well as a country is, is a very, very country, is a very difficult country to govern. It's not homogeneous. Yes, the Pashtuns, who are the predominant group of people, ethnic group of people there, do compose a large group, but they're not the majority. So it has always had governance problems that have resulted in lack of uh, in lack of services being provided through some sort of nation building scheme uh, and so on. So there are a lot of reasons for that. And um, it continues to be a, a very dangerous place for women and children for decades. In recent years, physical and political insecurity, as I said, COVID-19, drought, have, have all complicated. And it's also, it's also geopolitically also is positioned in a place where there's a lot of conflict around it. You have, you, it's landlocked by countries that are, that are also not very stable countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran. And that also puts it in a situation where it's, it's a very hard country to govern. It's a very hard landscape to have infrastructure for services in. It's a very hard social landscape to 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 navigate from a governance perspective. And women and girls and gender inequalities, which are present in all countries, but we have to understand that there's a spectrum and Afghanistan exists on an extreme end of that, that spectrum, continue to always be something that, that is the last to think about amongst all of these complexity. I always forget that it's landlocked and all sort of the things that come along with actually being a landlocked country, very interesting to me, but keeping it in terms of, or locking it down in terms of what's going on now 
and sort of fast forwarding, obviously we, a few weeks ago, this was like everything that was over every single headline. And now as any news media source, it kind of drifts back. Doesn't mean something's not happening, AKA everything is happening there continuously. What exactly is the status quo there right now? What is the situation? Like, do we have any idea of like what, what a pulse on it looks like? We do, we do. So we have, uh, so uh, as IRC, we continue to actually, we have to, we don't have a choice. We have to work with the Taliban to continue our operations as much as possible, keeping impartiality in perspective, but also keeping the needs on the ground as much as possible. We, we, we know that what, you, what we hear from the Taliban regime is that there's cooperation and there are plans for increased and, and um, incremental increased uh, support for for the humanitarian sector to come in and, and and provide services what we also know is that the taliban has always acted as an insurgency and insurgencies have a certain nature of acting they're very decentralized and rely on their uh, you know they're almost like police level beat level kingdoms that you know mm -hmm. it, it it has to operate that way and 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 so no matter what the central government says at the beat level so to speak it is the person who's responsible for that beat who is going to decide what can happen and what not can what cannot happen and usually there's a lot of loopholes and room for for manipulation there based on the character of that person based on based on the support they get from the community they're in and so on so it's very hard now with working with a government that is used to working as an insurgency to work as a centralized government that has a mandate and has decentralized uh, entities that report to it to have that kind of tr you know uh, trickle down of policies to allow humanitarian actors in or not allow humanitarian actors in. so that's the umbrella in which we're operating in terms of how it is for women Women continue to be very terrified inside Afghanistan. I mean, right now there are so many places. Of course, it's not all the same. It varies right. from one place to another. But the 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 you know, if we're gonna take the the average, women are are absent from public life. The women women who occupied influential spaces before the Taliban takeover continue to be very worried, especially those who were visible, like judges and, and 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 lawyers and teachers and media personals and journalists are are literally in hiding i mean when the taliban took over i've worked in in afghanistan and afghanistan continues to be a very dear place to me it's in one of the places where i've had the best memories and made the best friendships and continue to have a network of women there that are just rock stars basically i i really don't know how else to describe them and when the taliban took over a lot of them reached out to me because they know i work in an organization that's focused on displaced populations and refugees and resettlements so what makes irc unique in this space is not only we're working inside afghanistan we're also working in resettling afghan refugees on the u.s mm -hmm. front as well and you know hearing their stories and hearing them in hiding it, it was the most, uh, I mean, I, I, I could not, I could not separate my emotions from what's happening. It was very, very, it was like watching people trying to get out of a, of a building on fire and you, you can't do anything. And they're right. calling your name. They're saying right. help us and you can't do anything. And to this day, I, I, 
I, I continue to find it very, very difficult to, to process that. So women continue to be in a very volatile situation. We continue to do the best we can with what we have, where we are. But until there is a concerted, global, collective pressure on yeah. the, the, the Taliban and, and the ruling uh, government right now to prioritize these global human rights, we will continue to be just doing what we can where we are where, with what we have in that. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, what what is the U.S. doing or not doing to help women and girls in, in Afghanistan right now and post the withdrawal and everything? What is is there any involvement left? What's what's going on on the U.S. front? There has been a lot of involvement, but the involvement has not had a gender lens. Okay. And that is that is that continues to be something that we need to continue to pressure the U.S. on. So the U.S. government should continue to ensure that humanitarian aid flows without any conditionalities, and we continue to and that 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 is on, on its way. But we should continue to you know press that button as much as possible. At the same time, the U.S. and other governments, but the U.S. at the helm of it, is we should continue to use it, use diplomatic avenues to support safe passage of those who wish to leave and safe passage with a gendered lens because so far the safe passage that has been provided have been schemes that are designed for for that are very that are very unfriendly to for instance a household with a woman um, whose dependents are her parents for instance they're very nuclear traditional family you know the special uh, visas schemes and the and the priority two schemes are very focused on you know this is a nuclear family there's a head of household. The head of household uh, can be a woman, but most of the time when you talk about head of household in Afghanistan, it has to be a man and they can bring their spouse and their children. So we have a lot of even staff who are like, we are made to choose between our safety or our family, our safety as individuals working in humanitarian aid and our family who we can't take with us because I'm responsible for my siblings and my parents. In addition to that, you know, there's the, there's the P2 scheme where you have to go to a third country, even within the whole fiasco at the uh, fiasco at the um, at the airport. Um, a lot of women cannot push their way through thousands of men in that context. That's why we ended up with planes that are predominantly, you know, when you saw those pictures of the airplanes, they're predominantly men because. Even the way that the people were being received at the airport is not very conducive for a gender disaggregated environment where women cannot just push their way through the airport. I mean, the devil is in the details, right? So we sh- the U.S. should continue to push with, with the right of safe passage, but with a gendered lens. And it, doesn't, it, it just takes political will and intentionality. Yeah. Okay, wait, I have one more dumb question. Not, not, we not said even no more. we don't no. take no, it's, I can't even help it. It's just like, you know, it's habit at this point. But in terms of humanitarian aid, what is included in that term, that umbrella? Like, what is included? And also, like, what's not? And is there anything that should be that sort of gets thrown to the wayside? So again, not a dumb question at all. So it's it's absolutely a legitimate question. So 
I mean, there are some basics, which are the basic humanitarian um, needs. Think of it as a Muslim's pyramid, so to speak. So in, in IRC, we have, we have boiled down that there's a, there's a right to health, a right to safety, a right to economic well-being, a right to power, which is agency for you to decide for yourself. Mm -hmm. And then a right to, to education. These are according to you know our our um, our framework as IRC. We actually just recently we, we recently developed our uh, our strategy for becoming a hundred years old in 2033. We we were established in 1933, as I said, by Albert Einstein to help uh, Jews flee Germany during uh, um, Germany. And in 2033, we're going to turn 100 years old, and we have to um, develop a strategy where, when we are 100 years old, what do we want to say we have accomplished? What for those who we we, we assisted? And these are like the five outcome areas that we focus on: health, safety, education, economic well-being, power. Now it varies from one place to another, of course, but for us as IRC, these we believe that these are basic human rights that everyone mm -hmm. is entitled to. Totally. That's so amazing. Well, to kind of wrap everything up, can you kind of give our listeners ways that they can get involved in some of this stuff, whether it's just kind of the stuff you're working on or even back to this, you know, the conversation of Afghanistan and women and girls there, and especially here in the U.S. for our listeners, if there's ways that they can help out by reaching out to representatives in, or Congress or what are what are some ways that people can help out with some of this stuff? You know what? I, I've lived in the U.S. and I absolutely love that country. It has created some of the most beautiful people that I love in the world. Uh, the most, you know, the most people influential in my psyche as as a, as a social justice. But the, the thing that I always say is that I wish the rest of the world had a say in who you elect. Because it does impact the rest of the world. I'm so lot. glad you said that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Retweet. Yes, and, and it does impact us a lot across the world. It impacts, you know, how aid is distributed. It impacts everything. So, how can listeners support? To begin with, I mean, it's very easy. Just focus on organizations like the IRC. And I'm not saying that just because of the IRC, like the IRC organizations mm -hmm. that are trying to provide assistance in the most culturally appropriate way possible. Now, the IRC continues to work across the arc of the crisis, providing food, cash, and other aid. But we also work on the other, as I told you, on the other end in receiving and resettling refugees. And one of the ways that your listeners can can help is understanding whether how to support people inside Afghanistan and by supporting local actors and those who work with local actors and how to influence uh, decision makers and um, legislators and representatives from the U.S. perspective on how to think um, more inclusively when they are creating channels for the right of passage for for Afghans. So it's there's there's a lot of ways that that the US can help and 
you know, elected officials can be one, you know, also uh, exerting influence on elected officials on how to in, in humanitarian aid into Afghanistan. You know, the humanitarian cries in Afghanistan are not over. We're, we continue to hear them. And if they can't hear them to make sure that they hear them. They can also support all over U.S. investments. They must also, your listeners, I would encourage them to ask, to continue to ask questions about where funding is going and how it's going and put a gendered lens of where funding is going. Call your officials and ask them how much of this money is going to Afghan women and children. How are we making sure it's landing in the right hands with the right people? And just continue to pressure people that you elect to know how much their decisions have ramifications outside of your borders, which are also unavoidable inside your borders at some point because we're all so interconnected. Totally. Amazing. Global place we call home. Moving to Mars ASAP. No, I'm kidding. But... (laughs) This has been amazing. Thank you so much for all these awesome insights. And um, we cannot wait to have you back on to continue this conversation. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tammy. Alrighty. Well, let's get into the top stories of the week. Back to this election week that we were talking about because... You know, we'll be seeing within the next couple of days what the results are looking like in Virginia. But the Virginia governor's race is actually testing Joe Biden's strength. And here's yeah. why, because it's it's become a really tight race. And this is a first major test of how voters really feel about Joe Biden's presidency. So the governor's race was originally supposed to be a comfortable win for Democrats, but is now becoming suspenseful. <laughs> great. So great. Love great. That. Great. So love fun, to see cool. it. Mm, love. Okay. <laughs> So Terry McAuliffe, don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but we're going to go with it, is one of the most prominent figures um, in Democratic politics and was the former Virginia governor. And he is running against Glenn Youngkin, a Republican. So the campaign has highlighted issues including Youngkin's ties to President Trump, the future of abortion rights, and culture war battles in schools. So these results... It's just, it's a really bit, honestly, a bit of a struggle. In case you guys missed this, which is obviously becoming a little bit of a meme, but Biden fell asleep this past weekend for like a hot second, you know, just at that little climate just meeting. Just a quick little cat just a little, just a little snooze. Wow. Oh my God. I really got quite the snort on me. Anyways, he captured Virginia by 10 percentage points a year ago, but the competitive nature of governor's race is usually a sign of how political fortunes have changed. So in Biden's moment where his, his rating is like... So for Biden, who's like not doing so hot right now in the polls, this like definitely, it ain't great. The timing, the timing, everyone always says timing's everything with relationships, but the same thing with polling, and this is not great. A loss in a state that has been Democrat for more than 10 years would make midterms a deeper, alarming sort of situation and put Congress's control even further at stake. So like, it's just not great. It's kind of like the canary in the coal mine. Like we all know, and now here we are, we're seeing it. Obviously, we'll see what the results are in the coming days, but eek. And yeah. Well, the fact that it's even this close in the pre-polling is telling on its own, regardless of what the results end up being post-election. Even if he wins, and the fact that there was ended up being a suspenseful race is, again, just telling of what could be threatened next year in the midterm elections. If Biden doesn't honestly step up his game, the whole Democratic Party is going to suffer next year and we could very easily lose control of of Congress. So 
that's that on that. Totally. And so at the polls, you know, you, you're getting some interesting conversation. So one particular person that was interviewed said, I'm definitely a little scared of this particular rights being restricted for women like myself and those that I work with and serve my business every day, which is said by this woman that was interviewed there. Anyone endorsed by President Trump is not someone I want representing me. But yeah, it's to, to give a little more context, I guess, to this bad preview moment. In 2009, during Obama's first year in office, Bob McDonald, who was GOP, um, had a victory, which previewed a really bad midterm cycle for Democrats. So, like, it just doesn't bode well. Yeah, so the trends um, of this just don't look great. But, again, we will see in the next coming days what happens with this election and then ultimately see next year. But, you know, anything can happen. even it's if true. Even if Virginia gets this man in office, which let's pray that that doesn't happen. We can still work our asses off and, and be good in the midterms. But that's it's just an interesting trend we're seeing. It's an interesting trend. We'll keep our eye on it. And then also speaking of another governor's race that has some eyes on it, but not as much as Virginia. It's not as contentious. My old home state of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, who's the current governor, is trying to win re-election against uh, Republican, so Jack Citarelli, who is a former state assembly member, as just a little background, despite New Jersey always having the reputation as like a blue state, we have had quite a few Republican governors. Also, fun fact: I have never voted in New Jersey, despite being from there. Like, I voted in PA, voted in New York. Was not I was never old enough when I lived in New Jersey, and I just yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. I I don't know if I need to go. To You're therapy. a real state hopper. Stay hopper. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. That's easy to do on the East Coast, though. So it's, it's fine. true. It's true. Well, another interesting election piece that's happening this week is a ballot question in Minneapolis, actually, where the killing of George Floyd took place. So there's a ballot question that basically states, shall the Minneapolis city charter be amended to remove the police department and replace it with a department of public safety that employs a comprehensive public health approach to the delivery of functions by the department of public safeties with those specific functions to be determined by the mayor and city council by ordinance, which will not be subject to exclusive mayoral power over its establishment maintenance and command, and which could include licensed peace officers or parentheses, police officers, if necessary to fulfill its responsibilities for public safety. With the general nature of the amendments being briefly indicated in the explanatory note below, which is made a part of this ballot. I just think this is so interesting, especially you guys. Like, this is just a testament to how important local politics are and local elections. And this is really a result of last year and, you know, protests and just a lot of civic activity and engagement from a lot of people that look at now there's this ballot measure that could potentially really change the game in Minneapolis when it comes to public safety. So yeah, and it's definitely, you know, local ballot measure that's going to really take over national news and the national conversation around public safety. So we'll see what happens there. True. I would like to make one little asterisk, one little meh on it is... I do feel like, and this is not a new feeling and not I just me on this, but so many of these ballot questions, ballot measures are so poorly written. I mean, they're right. written to be confusing. 
And like that's why we, I literally was laughing reading through that entire paragraph. It's like it's insane. I there's a much easier and concise way to say exactly what that just said. A thousand percent. Okay, moving forward to a different story, which is talking about our domestic spending bill that we were talking about nonstop. <laughs> so basically, here we are. Here's an update, Senator Manchin wavered on Monday on his support for the $1.75 trillion domestic policy proposal. Oh my god. Democrats are still pushing ahead. Initial voting in one $1 trillion infrastructure votes are possible this week. Democrats wanted assurance that Manchin would support, and he is one of two key holdout senators whose votes are needed to secure the deal. So, Senator Manchin literally said, (laughs) said this. He stated that he is open to voting for a final bill reflecting Biden's big package that moves our country forward, quote. But he also stated that he is also, quote, equally open to voting against him. So he's basically like, can you keep, like, can you keep just, like, kissing my ass, schmoozing me, begging me? Like, I just, he loves it. He fucking loves the attention. And he's like, yeah, I, I I would support it, but like I also would be open to not supporting it. <laughs> like, what what is going on? He just, I genuinely don't know who annoys me more at this point, like him or cinema. Like, I really, I can't. Like, it's at they this both point, are just obsessed just so, with attention. Totally, That's it's like it so like. selfish, and it's like I don't like. Yeah, I guess you know more conservative areas trying to win points with them. It's like you're just pathetic at this point. Like. Senator Manchin says he's prepared to support a Build Back Better plan that combats inflation, is fiscally responsible, and will create jobs. As a result, remain confident the plan will gain Senator Manchin's support. Like, it's just insane. Like, at this point, like, get in or get out. I can't. It's just a bunch of, like, political bureaucratic baloney, and I... He wants a few more, like, surf and turf dinners. He wants to be wined and dined a few more times, and then then he'll probably cave. (laughs) It's that's, just ridiculous. That's where my trust is at with, with this man. Oh, yeah. I don't trust him with my life. So then, okay. So also with like Manchin, too, basically in like direct response to the progressive, what he thinks is his tactic is holding this bill hostage won't work to get my support for the broader one. The public works bill of the roads, highways, the broadband progress has already been approved by the Senate as being solved by House progressives as the broader negotiations. Oh, my God. Broader negotiations are underway. And then about Biden's big package, Manchin said he will not support a bill that is this consequential without thoroughly understanding the impact it has on the economy and federal debt. This is not how the United States Congress should operate, Manchin said. It's our time to elect leaders in Washington to stop playing games. Bitch, you're playing games. Literally. Literally. Oh, my God. Over the weekend, Democrats made progress toward adding provisions and one proposal under discussion would let medicare negotiate prices with pharmaceutical companies and you know what i just realized like mansion is like such a political fuckboy like just in terms of terminology yeah no i mean no one plays no fuckboy i've ever dealt with plays as many games as as senator mansion here Mm -hmm. so i don't know who he's trying to trying to fool anyways so some moderate Democrats in the House say they, they want to see the final assessment from the Congressional Budget Office, which will offer a nonpartisan assessment of the overall bill's entire budgetary cost before taking the vote. So there might be a vote this week. There might not. There's still things to work out. There's still things to look into. So yeah, it seems like we're right exactly where we've been for the past Great. month, Yay. weeks, Ew. weeks on end. Ooh. But you know that we'll always be here giving you updates on whatever happens. But let us know if you have questions on this stuff. 
it's confusing and we're we're aware we're aware of that so but we'll get into something else that's kind of confusing as well we're going to move into the supreme court and talk about the controversial texas abortion law so monday majority of the supreme court signaled that they would allow abortion providers to pursue a court challenged the controversial Texas law that has virtually ended abortion in the nation's second largest state after six weeks of pregnancy. But it was unclear how quickly the court would rule and whether it would issue an order blocking the law that's been in effect for two months. Wow, God, it does not feel like two months. It feels like yesterday. But okay, or require providers to ask a lower court to put the law on hold. So Justices Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Cody Barrett, two conservative appointees of good old Donnie, Donnie boy, Donnie Trump, voted in September to allow the law to take effect, but they raised questions Monday about its novel structure. So the law, written to make it difficult to mount legal challenges, subjects clinics, doctors, and any others who facilitate abortions to large financial penalties. Neither case argued Monday is the right to an abortion directly an issue. But the motivation for the lawsuits is that Texas law conflicts with landmark Supreme Court rulings that prevent a state from banning abortion early in pregnancy. And then the justices will hear a separate challenge to those decisions in a case over Mississippi's abortion ban after 15 weeks. And those arguments are set for December 1st. So the most direct reference to the Mississippi case came from Justice Samuel Alito, who asked if the decision by providers to stop doing abortions in Texas is, quote, attributable to the fear of liability if Roe or Casey is altered. So most of the questions focused on the Texas law and how it has altered abortion in the state even before the high court has made any change in abortion law. And if the Supreme Court doesn't do anything about that, she said, it would be inviting states to try to flout precedent. And that can be on things like guns, same-sex marriage, religious rights, whatever you don't like, go ahead, she said. So basically... There's, there's some good news here, a little bit. There's like a little shimmer of hope with this abortion ban um, because now they're allowing abortion providers to sue, whereas before they weren't able to do that. So now some of these court cases can actually make it up to the Supreme Court and challenge this Texas abortion law. So I guess it's good news, but like not really. I don't know. Yeah, I just... <laughs> but I do want to like actually play this one TikTok sound that I sent you last night. I just think it's applicable to this conversation. Oh my god, is that the governor? Are you the governor? Oh my god! Why would you sign a law telling women whether they can have an abortion or not? That makes you a douchebag. Oh my god, is that the governor? That was like some random guy with Governor Abbott. And I just, I saw that last night and had a giggle, had a laugh. And I'm just very grateful for that man for stepping up and, and doing that that civic duty that he did. But those are our top stories of, of the week. And that is our episode. Go buy merch. Woo. You will love it. They're soft. They're cozy. They're cute. And they promote civic engagement. What could be better? Chipotle for free for the rest of my life. But other from that, I totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, that's fair. I mean, who can argue free Chipotle for life? sounds amazing i hope you guys all voted if you have an election and i hope you go look at merch i hope you love it and we'll be talking to you all next wednesday
Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.